humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Batir. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batir. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with John King, CEO of Hyperlight Energy. Hyperlight Energy is a technology developer and manufacturer focused on concentrated solar power for industrial and commercial heat processes. If you follow me on LinkedIn, you know I am often discussing the importance of decarbonizing heating and cooling. So I'm really excited to get to this point in detail and see how John and Hyperlight, how they are tackling this challenge. But first, let's get a baseline on John, on Hyperlight, and on concentrated solar power. John, Thank you for joining me today on the show. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background and introduce us to your company. Joe, uh, thank you. Uh, Really excited to be here. This is great. Um, So our company, Hyperlight Energy, was uh, founded uh, over a decade ago, um, and we've developed uh, a disruptively low-cost concentrated solar power system. Uh, I think we'll get into it here in the discussion, but uh, we're, our main ingredient is a really low-cost plastic uh, solar reflector. Well, John, thank you for, for that. And I think as we talk through this, I'm excited to learn how you've created this disruptively low, this low CSP or concentrating solar power. So... We keep talking about concentrated solar power. Let's talk about what that actually is. Can you explain what concentrated solar power is? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. And I think we need the explanation because, you know, the really breathtaking uh, scale up and success in another category, solar PV, has uh definitely gotten the public's attention and people know, you know, when you say solar, people, you know, picture about a tabletop sized, you know, black rectangle that you can put on your house or on a, on a rooftop for, uh, you know, at a grocery store or, uh, you know, big box retail. So it's this rooftop, highly modular, uh, technology and it produces electricity. And that's, that's what people think of when you say solar. So there's another category that's not as widely deployed, but a lot of people actually have seen it in one way or another, oftentimes on TV or on uh, you know, the internet, where you have these giant mirror fields. And it's, it's not these black rectangles that are absorbing photons from the sun and producing electricity. They're mirror panels that are reflecting photons from the sun and aiming them on a target. 
So picture large fields of usually garage door sized mirrors, and they're all pointed at a target, either a tower or a long, like a line focused target up in the air. So when you're, and that's the concentration, many, many um, reflections on one small area. So you're concentrating the light and that target gets really, really hot. As I, I've said before, and I like to say, it's sort of like a, a kid using a magnifying glass to burn a hole in a leaf. Uh, when you concentrate the sunlight, it's very powerful. So uh, CSP originally, over a decade ago, the, the drive was to try to compete directly with solar power, you know, toe to toe. And so to use that heat to make electricity, you're, you got to produce steam to drive a turbine and spin a turbine to run a generator and you get the electricity. So uh, there's another use, and that's that's what we're going after initially, which is just process heat. So there's um, a, a large section of industry that needs heat to run their processes. So CSP also can just be used. You can just use the heat directly to run your industrial process. So there's two, two general categories within CSP that you can go after. Does that, uh, I think that's a general synopsis. Do you think that's a good one, Joe, or do you have more questions on that? Yeah, I think that is, that's a good, that's a good synopsis. And that helps us understand what, what exactly we're talking about. Now, one question I, I am curious because the, the, Concentrating solar power is, as the name implies, taking mirrors, concentrating the direct solar energy, whereas PV is somehow making electricity. Can you explain a little bit behind the, really that difference in terms of using photovoltaics and PV to generate electricity versus concentrating solar power what's the difference yeah. in technology there yeah yeah it's there, there's some important points so uh, PV is using semiconductor technology so you have a solid-state electronics system is essentially what it is and the photovoltaic effect is what you're taking advantage of in the silicon uh, that's in the panel the the photons from the sun hit the silicon and you have what's called a band gap where they're exciting electrons to jump across this band gap. Uh, the way PV is done, the, the specific, and I apologize if I'm getting too detailed technical here, but um, I think it, it does, it's worth, it's worth the effort. So uh, the, the specific uh, photons that cause that uh, band gap jump, the electrons to jump the band gap, um, are in the visible portion of the spectrum. So if, if you picture the solar spectrum, the light coming from the sun, there's only a portion that's visible. It's about half the energy. Um, and the, the majority of the rest of it is infrared, which is certainly, you can feel it. It's, it's hot. It's the heat. And, um, that doesn't uh, that doesn't serve to help the PV panel at all. It's just lost. Um, with a mirror, you've got a pane of glass with uh, a metallic backing, usually silver on a very thin layer of silver on the back, 
And that actually reflects all the photons, regardless of uh, the specific part of the spectrum they're in. So we can aim both the visible and invisible parts of the spectrum. So it's much higher energy capture. The other thing is mirrors just on a per unit area basis are cheaper than semiconductor technology. Uh, it's just a simpler process to make a mirror. Um, so so that, that was the original vision and advantage of CSP was that you have much cheaper surface area, your photon collection aperture is just fundamentally cheaper. And that's still, and actually that's still true. Mirrors still are much cheaper than silicon wafers. Um, and they have higher energy capture per unit area. So if you have the same area, say one square meter of, you know, a PV panel uh, versus one square meter mirror, you're going to get roughly twice the energy capture because you're, you're capturing the entire spectrum with a mirror. So that was the idea, both cheaper surface area and higher energy capture. So those are the advantages. I'll, I'll pause there. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's really fascinating to think about these two technologies coming out and both looking at the sun being this, this big ball of energy and trying to say, how do we harness that energy? And it was two, two different routes being, being the semiconductor and kind of direct electrical generation route versus the the concentrating of that that energy through CSP using the mirrors and it's I guess I never realized that you've got the that higher energy density because the mirrors can capture the entire energy spectrum whereas PV missing the infrared right. and then you've got the 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 price factor is obvious, right. obviously a, an important part. Now we've we've you've pointed out a lot of the benefits of CSP, but I I am not aware of CSP growing gangbusters. I'm not aware of anybody putting a, right. a right. CSP so collector <laughs> on their right. yeah yeah. So yeah, I appreciate that, and I, I think that's an important part of the story here, and that's. Like you say, we've been in R&D for a long time, and that's specifically the disadvantages I'll, you know, I'll talk through now, and that's what we've been trying to address this whole time. So you know, I just talked about the virtues of mirrors versus PV panels, but here's, here's, here's the rub. To actually use those photons, you've got to aim them at a target, and so it's the aiming. The issue is the sun moves. The, the nice, the wonderful thing about PV is that it doesn't care what if, if it's, you know, aimed perfectly or not. Right? Now, there are tracking. There's trackers for PV that give you, you know, percentage boost. But those can be off by like 10 degrees and st you know, still work pretty well. And ultimately, if it's on a rooftop, you probably don't have a tracker. You don't care. So it's just easy. You have a panel, you put it out. And boom, you're generating electricity. It's, it's pretty straightforward. With mirrors, you have to track. And you have to track very accurately. Just picture a field of these mirrors. It, it's like a field of wings. So with a gust of wind, you get lift. And that lift is enough to knock you off target. If, and you're, and if, you're not, if you're off target, 
yeah, you got all those photons, but they're not being used for anything because they're not hitting your target. So that leads to these expensive steel structures to make sure they stay on target and sophisticated actuators and control algorithms. And it just, it, it starts to, to eat into your cost advantage. Then in the case of power generation for CSP for power generation, you got to build a power plant. Um, you, you gotta, you gotta build, um, you know, steam turbine and a generator and electrical interconnection equipment and all, and, you know, some in controls to control the fluids, uh, flowing around the plant, just the whole thing, you're, you're building a whole power plant. And so that again, it's, it, you know, the, the balance of plant for a PV installation is like an inverter and you just pick that off the shelf at this point. Um, so there is some cost, but it's, it's nothing compared to building a power plant. So um, that it, it resulted in a couple things over the course of the development of CSP. In, in the first place, you the way you get down the cost curve when you're dealing with you know steel structure is economies of scale you go to scale and so all the companies in the first wave of csp were under enormous pressure investor pressure to go to scale immediately so that you could have returns and you know ipos and exits and success so they were under massive pressure to go to scale immediately um and at at that scale your economic stack, your CapEx stack, the power plant spend is a smaller piece of the overall pie. So again, you're reducing that cost as a percentage of your CapEx. And that, that was the strategy that everybody followed. Go to massive scale as fast as possible to go down the cost curve. So, okay, here's, here's the problem. With any new technology, well, the... <laughs> I should say the problem. There's actually a study out by NREL. There were they 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 documented over a thousand problems in the process uh, of scaling up, uh, and there's a there's a wide variety of these problems. And so when you have any new technology, you're going to have lessons learned. You're going to have stuff that you got to fix along the way. And when you're at say hundred. 200, 500 megawatt scale, which a lot of these projects were right at, you know, they'll do like a 500 kilowatt demo and then you go to 500 megawatts. Like, come on guys, that that's tough. So, you know, it's now a good time to talk through that example. Uh, I mean, that's in, it's uh, about the yeah. scaling up. Yeah. Yeah. So we, 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 so yeah, the, the kind of poster child example is a company that had hired, that had a big project and they were building it. Um, and they had hired an engineer procure construct, an EPC firm that had built some Spanish power towers. So that's one kind of CSP, it's called a power tower. And the Spanish feed-in tariff, I think at the time when they built this was like 27 cents a kilowatt hour or 27 euro cents a kilowatt hour. So they had a lot of... Um, a really good price to work with so that they could spend money and such. And so they built these first few things in Spain. And so, okay, the, they have the experience so we can go to scale with the trusted partner, right? So that they hire these guys to build in Nevada. Well, the rain in Spain falls mainly in the plain. 
but it never freezes, right? So then you get to the high desert in Nevada and guess what? It does freeze. So the actuators to move these garage door size mirrors, you get, apparently they weren't waterproof or completely waterproof or something like that. So they had some water intrusion and then it freezes and water expands when it freezes. So you have massive numbers of actuator failures. And then yeah, that, I mean, that's just a nightmare. You're, you're, you got 10,000 garage door size mirrors that just became 10,000 garage door size paperweights. So all of a sudden your project's not producing. So you have no, you know, revenue to work with and you have to do a whole retrofit. You have to do a design build test cycle for new actuators. Do you even believe the company that bought that you bought the actuators from in the first place? Do you believe that they can fix the problem and deliver actuators that will work? Or if you go with somebody else, do those actuators speak the same language as your control system that you just spent millions designing, building, testing, and implementing? You're really stuck. Um, so, and that's just one problem. And in this best practices study that I mentioned from the, from NREL, you've got thousands or a th- over a thousand problems. So that contrasts during the same time period of photovoltaic where they're deploying, you could deploy as little as one panel for a project. You know, somebody's, uh, you know, wilderness shed that they just, it's off grid and they want to charge a battery so that when they you know, go out there. Now, if that thing freezes and something fails, okay, you got to replace one panel and you go back to the vacuum. You say, oh, this is where we messed up. So you fix this part of it. And, you know, you go from there. And, and, and so the, the cost reduction pathway was in PV is like one panel at a time during the same time period. It's not that they didn't have a thousand problems. Of course they did. Of course they did new products, you know, uh, engineering changes, improvements, cost reduction, performance improvement. Of course they have problems, but they got to solve them one panel at a time and all the rest of their projects were generating revenue. And so they had the money available to fix it. So a lot of the CSP companies crash and burn, um, fall in that pathway. Yeah. As, as you're talking, I'm, I'm just thinking of some of the work that we do at PetroLearn thinking about, retrofitting oil and gas wells and we we look at over a hundred different parameters just just per well to try and figure out which wells can we actually retrofit for geothermal so that's one of those just having all of those different criteria that you actually have to look at in order to make a project work all the different parameters that could go wrong and then the idea of jumping from from 500 kilowatts up to 500 megawatts, that that significant order of magnitude jump, then it's three like three orders of magnitude. Like yes, if it was yes, just one order of magnitude, magnitude, if it was just 10x, it'd be okay. But no, when you try and jump a thousand x, I mean, yeah, yeah, forget about it. Yeah, Sorry to interrupt. Oh no worries. It's just when you think about a decline curve, typically it is a nice smooth function. And so I could see doing modular replacements with PV. You're getting down that, you're removing those those issues, those failure points, one at a time. And if you step back far enough, it looks like a nice smooth function to drop that price. Whereas if you are jumping up to that 500 megawatts 
all of a sudden you have all of those parameters you have to solve immediately, which means you basically have a a cliff where you either are going to hit it out of the park and everything's going to be fine and you're going to go from your your whatever X price per megawatt hour and drop that immediately to Y price per megawatt hour and you're going to look like a you're going to look like a genius whereas it <laughs> it typically isn't going to work like that right right <laughs> as, when as you use the word cliff very appropriately it is a cliff if it, it's either a stair step in which case you, you're actually still on on solid ground you walk down a stair step and then that's the genius or it's a cliff where you fall off the face of the earth and you're done yeah yep yeah so so this is a an interesting interesting idea because what it sounds like to me if we stick with this metaphor is that hyperlight presumably was standing at the top of the cliff looking down and what it sounds like is you are trying to build that staircase so that you could make it down the decline curve and as you said disruptively low cost it sounds like you guys are in fact building a pretty sturdy staircase. I appreciate that. Thanks. Um, yeah, we, we, we are very fortunate in a lot of ways. We started out um, with a fundamentally low cost platform in CSP, right? We had this plastic support structure and I'll, I'll, leave it to you to lead the conversation around you know, the background on that and how we got to that. But just looking at the CSP piece of this, we were able to use a much smaller budget to do the same type of work to perfect the system. So over a decade of you know, California Energy Commission uh, U.S. Department of Energy and uh, Southern California Gas Company, so a, a utility company, um, doing contracts and grants for R&D. And so the budget there, you're talking about single-digit millions versus tens and hundreds of millions that other uh, CSP uh, players um, had access to uh, in the, going the VC route where you're under pressure to go to mega scale immediately. We weren't under that pressure to go to mega scale immediately, and but we had the smaller budgets. We could use it though because we didn't have to build, you know, these these uh, steel um, mega structures to see if our stuff would work. So we did multiple generations um, along the way, and we would improve this, we'd fix that, we'd discover, oh my gosh, we got this part wrong, and we got to fix it. And so we never were in a situation where we had built something too big to fix. We ne to this day, knock on wood, very, very uh, grateful. We never built something too big to fix. So we've always been able to fix it and get it working. And, you know, we're on a third generation uh, system and um, we're going to, we're going to commercial scale now and we're still following the same pathway where we're, we're not going to the, we're not going immediately to the major mega, project scale because we still have deployment, um, integration, everything else that we've done some of, and we're going to continue to do, and we want to follow that same strategy. So, you know, low cost platform to start that 
enabled low cost R&D to perfect, to get to scale. Yeah, I think that's that's really great. And I, I guess continuing with that staircase analogy and something that I think is what we're kind of talking around is that y'all have made a, a number of innovations the and I, I I'd like to dive into those a little bit more next but these these innovations you've made each one is kind of doing that building a new step down and building out a complete product that that ends up being a a game changer and it it's something that that you've done over over the course of a 10-year journey as well as using different different avenues for for funding and for that research generation yeah let's let's dive into some of those new innovations that you've made you've talked a lot about the 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 plastic nature so i'm i'm assuming the the plastic is replacing the steel component. How and why does that work? Yeah, what is yeah, that? yeah. That's a good. Can I talk about the background, the the original use of the plastic, which was not CSP? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk about that and then explain how that works into into this new CSP technology. Right, right. So, if someone had told us uh, over a decade ago, said you know, if someone said, John go design the world's lowest cost uh, solar concentrator. I would not have done this. We actually started off trying to do an algae to biofuels photobioreactor. So we had these plastic tubes that were holding algae culture. We weren't a biology company, we were a systems company. And just looking at heat and mass balance and liquid fluid containment, fluid flow, that sort of thing. We, we wanted to be a platform technology for algae biofuels back in the um, over over a decade ago now, and um, so that's that's how we got on these plastic tubes. So one of the things we we had happen was there was this uh, thermal um, runaway issue where the, the algae culture was overheating. And if you remember, I was talking about half the energy in sunlight is infrared. Well. Algae also only use the visible portion of the spectrum. Just, actually, just like a PP panel, they only use the visible. And that half of the energy that's thermal, the IR, is just a nuisance. And when you're overheating your algae culture, they become less productive. In fact, they can just die if they get too hot. And it's a real problem. So we went out and got a, what's called a spectrum splitting film. And this stuff is actually on a lot of luxury cars to keep the cabin cool. You put on the windows, it bounces out the infrared, but let's do the visible. And so we were using this sophisticated spectrum splitting film that was bouncing the IR photons off the system back out into space where it belongs, keep our algae, you know, from uh, having that increased thermal load. Um, and we had these panels on top of tubes and we realized, wait a second, that we're reflecting the IR. You can't see it, but we know it's reflecting in a specular way. So we, it, we had a mixing mechanism to, to rock these tubes back and forth. And we realized we could modify that, that mechanism that kind of rolls the tubes back and forth and kind of calibrate this uh, array of tubes so that the, that reflected IR would hit 
target. We were aware of CSP at the time, and we realized, wait a second, we sort of made an IR concentrator here. And we can use, we can capture that heat. And the initial idea was, it's kind of funny that it might be back about it. Um, the initial idea was to capture the IR and use it to process the algae, like to do, say, hydrothermal liquefaction on the algal biomass to um, mm. process it into fuel um, or you know, something along those lines. Um, we initially envisioned a hybrid system that was algae and CSP, and the CSP was aiding the algae. Very soon realized, wait a second, CSP can be uh, 20, 30% efficient versus algae that's, you know, world record algae is like 2% efficient. So we could replace the spectrum splitting film with a full spectrum reflector, also known as a mirror, much cheaper, you know, centuries of experience with mirrors. Um, uh, well, centuries of experience with glass and I don't know, our mirror is a century old, at least something like that, 150 years. So very mature technology and then all of a sudden we've got uh, a CSP system that has this step function decrease in cost because we're using plastic. So that's how we, we got to that. We, we made that market and technical pivot and we haven't, we haven't looked back. And um, there's an interesting thing. We, if, if, you tr if you look at a CSP reflector system, a heliostat or uh, linear Fresnel, our, our GM is called the Linear Fresnel Reflector, LFR. Um, you look at these things and you see the metal. If you just swap out you know, a metal uh, bar or metal rod and put in plastic, it's lighter, but it, it doesn't have the same structural characteristics. So the system wouldn't work. You can't, you can't just swap metal for plastic. You actually have to have a fundamentally different design. And that's, we, we had that from the start. We had these tubes, just lay them down and the tube itself is laying on the surface. In this case, what we, after multiple generations, we actually just put them directly on the ground and they just sit on the ground and the structure itself pivots back and forth and that's it. So you have to have a different design. You have to reinvent it from the ground up, which is what we did. Just observing the previous thing we were trying to do and realizing we could step incrementally and modify it. And so we ended up, uh, with that, that component of the system is, you know, a significant cost reduction relative to the steel and, um, uh, you know, expensive structural approaches that others use. And so that's kind of the background. There's a lot more to it, but I'll pause right there. Yeah, I think that that's a fascinating point and a, a very important, important part to, to emphasize the, the fact that this was a it was a 10-year journey it was from algae biofuels into csp and it's it was interesting you were you were pursuing this one end goal of of producing the most efficient algae into biofuels that you could and you essentially built a, the cheapest csp system possible and it just required a step-by-step -step building and ultimately kind of stepping back from what you were doing and realizing we're building the system the system works great it concentrates solar power but if we 
tweak a few things and jump industries, we end up with a a really a, a very powerful, very competitive new product. Yeah. I can, and I can add to that. And it's, it's, I love talking about this stuff. So I'll, I'll just trust you to keep rein me in if I just blather on too much here, but sourcing these tubes, we initially were using contract manufacturers and the, the neat thing about plastic tubes, extruding plastic, plastic extruded tubes. It's a huge industry in the United States, very mature um, manufacturing and supply chain you know, just look at a uh, big box um, home supply center, your Lowe's, your Home Depot's of the world and everywhere else that sells this stuff. You see racks and racks, whole walls full of plastic pipe. And that's all domestically produced. You, you're talking about something like millions of um, miles of plastic tube extruded every year in this country. And it's not, it's not um, done overseas because look at a pipe end on. If you ship a pipe, you're mostly shipping air. So it doesn't pay to ship it a long time, a long way. So we have a very healthy and robust um, extrusion industry. For renewable energy, okay, there's a key thing about, there's another key thing about extrusion that's very interesting. You have uh, a 2D profile, your part, any extruded part, a 2D profile, and then the third dimension, the length dimension, just happens automatically. It comes out of the extruder, comes off the extruder line at some number of feet per second, some number of feet per minute, and it just goes. So it's very, it's it's highly automated, and it, it's highly continuous and very simple. So now picture other renewable energy products. Picture your steel. Uh, support structures for mirrors, picture of solar panels. Those are not, you don't have a 2D profile that you just, you know, continuously produce in the third dimension on a linear fashion. It's a 3D mm -hmm. product. So you have, instead of a continuous flow process, you have a step and repeat process. You have to do some stuff in three dimensions to it and then step and repeat and do the same three dimension thing to the next. So you have much more complicated, expensive manufacturing across the board. Um, that we've been able to parlay into low cost. It's not just a low cost material. Plastic is cheaper than steel, but it's also the production process is cheaper and easier. That, that, that was not immediately apparent to us. Um, we kind of lucked into that and it, it had another knock on effect. We needed, yeah. what's interesting about, yeah, I'll pause there if you want to offer any comments on that. Yeah, I just, I think that's really fascinating that that's one of those things that, that I've never even, even thought about or considered when looking at renewable energies. It is the idea of process automation and, and modular and really improved, improved building of the pro the the end products has been something that I've had on the show and from other aspects, but even from the standpoint of the idea of you're producing something that is American made, which means less supply chain, less transportation, 
just overall less costs for domestic energy from that regard. And then, and then the fact that you are building it as a, as a very continuous process, getting those raw materials, raw materials. I think that's another one of those things that maybe you didn't think about. It's definitely something plastic tubing manufacturers think about, and they've, they've made this process as efficiently as possible. But from that regard, it, it was a, it was almost a happy coincidence for you that it, it also had this stepwise, it was almost like that step was built in for you. You just had to get there. It's that's very a story. Cool. That's the story of my life. That's the story of my life, Joe. If, if, if this can be a recurring theme, anytime anybody talks to me, is that you know um, we started off, I think, on a path that maybe wasn't ideal. The you know sys- platform system provider for the algae biofuels industry, right? That maybe wasn't ideal. But then we had the humility and presence of mind to recognize a different thing we could and should do. And then with, and so we did. And then you're right, that was a happy coincidence. We didn't plan on that. And then the manufacturing piece of it was also, we didn't plan on that. We recognized it and went after it. And it's another interesting thing. The contract manufacturers, like we have an under, we have an understanding of the material costs. We had an estimate of the you know labor, you know value out of labor to produce it and you know, amortize how much the equipment costs and amortizing it over produced, etc. But it was a fascinating journey when we go to the big guys, the big extruders. You know, it was hard to talk to them because we're a very small volume, so it's not very interesting for their business case. But the smaller, more nimble, more innovative uh, contract guys. They would talk to us. And so we actually had um, the first article parts to our design specs. I mean, that took some time, but we got it before we even had an NDA signed with the big guys. So that tells you about the sort of innovation and R&D process. We had had to use the small guys, but the small guys are used to doing, you know, smaller runs, smaller parts at higher margins. Mm -hmm. Like you're talking not necessarily your, you know, irrigation pipes at um, Lowe's and Home Depot. You're talking about uh, plastic tubing for hospitals and medical devices, where the device there is your high margin. And they don't care, like the medical guys don't care how much the tubing costs. If they save, you know, a penny per linear foot, they don't care. If somebody charges them an extra penny per linear foot, an extra five or 10 pennies per linear foot. It's, it's such a, it's a rounding error. They would rather invest their time and effort, not in bringing that process in house. They are going to invest their time and effort in innovating on their core technology to cure people of whatever. So we're paying these high margins to these contract guys. Once we go into production and we thought, Hmm, that dog don't hunt. They're, they're eating up much more than our profit. If we go to scale with this thing. So we actually, again, we were forced we actually invested in our own extrusion line to prove our cost model to the granting agencies. We literally bought our own and we were, this is the astonishing thing about the scale up potential for what we're doing. It was, uh, we bought 1980s vintage used equipment for like 80,000 bucks. And I'm not lying. Um, and we, we had to hire a lot of people to 
teach us and train us how to use it and what to do. We're, we're now actually, you know, for what we do, we're very expert at producing our kind of uh, product on this stuff. And uh, we have a factory now. We, we, we have our own factory. And for that modest investment, we actually, the capacity is over 10 megawatts a year that we can produce from this initial $80,000 investment. So do your math on that. Wow. If you know anything about the PV, like, do your math, how much would it cost to build a 10 megawatt a year PV plant? You ain't going to get that for no 80,000 bucks. So as we scale up, that's the other unique thing here is if, you know, knock on wood, we get bigger and bigger orders as we're, we're working on. And I, you know, hopefully um, have some, you know, additional fun, good news to talk about uh, this year. But we can meet that with incremental, you know, investment to expand production uh, in a, in a, and it's very fast. You get this stuff in the order of a couple months. You set up and expand in just a couple months. So we can scale up the business the same way. Uh, it's it's a pretty, and, and this, we just, I'm sort of observing this stuff. It's just sort of there and I'm like, oh, look at that. And we can do it. So it's, it's been another happy coincidence that we have uh, that opportunity in front of us. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. One thing that, that I wanted to touch on that I wanted to make sure we we discussed was the the target market that mm. that Hyperlight is going for that being industrial heat processes being in geothermal I entirely understand the idea of direct use power really the the heat versus conversion to electricity and and one thing that maybe not everybody understands is that there is a significant energy loss when you convert heat power into electricity. So I just think it is, it is, it, it can't be emphasized enough. The fact that you are focused on that heat market as opposed to that conversion point, because that conversion just loses so much and that that makes the economics harder in general. Yeah. So that's a good point. The initial, and I would say this is our initial focus. We do in the long run want to go after the power uh, markets uh, and electricity. And I think there's some a powerful case to be made in the future, hopefully near future. But in the immediate future, the now, we are doing process heat. Our initial commercial project that we're, we're thrilled to be working with, a, a great company, Saputo Inc., which is a white label cheese manufacturers. So you probably have had Saputo cheese and just didn't know it. They're, they're you know, white label for you know, top brands, and, um, you know, mm. pizza chains throughout the country. Um, you know, number three, I think cheese producer in uh, North America or the world. I mean, they're, they're, they're great. And so they have a cheese plant in uh, Tulare, which is between Bakersfield and Fresno. And so we're deploying our system Hilux at their plant, and it's it's just for the heat. There's an enormous amount of process heat in all of food manufacturing. Um, in this case, you know they've got to keep this the plant very clean and clean it twice a day. So they're using hot water and steam to do that. And so we're you know we're displacing the fuel they would normally burn. Uh, we're displacing a portion of that to decarbonize at at the site. And so that's just heat. And the food industry uses broadly speaking, uses heat for drying processes, for boiling this or that um, ingredient or this or that uh, part of the 
food production process. Another big industry is fuel production. So in California, there's what's called uh, enhanced oil recovery, where again, they're burning fuel to produce steam and that goes um, into formations to get uh, oil out. That's one kind of oil production. And so a big, it's, it's a large use of uh, fuel. And so uh, a big thing we're doing is going after these enhanced oil recovery projects where we can put in uh, a solar process heat system. And again, we're not, we're not producing power. Uh, they don't need so much electricity at these sites. They need the heat. So we give them the heat. And it's not, not replacing infrastructure. It's not replacing the equipment. It's a fuel swapping thing where they're burning less fuel. And so you're decarbonizing like the well-to-wheels uh, carbon footprint. We're decarbonizing that at the well, right? So we're reducing that footprint at the well. Um, and it's, it means that we're, we're taking advantage of the higher energy capture because it, we get it all as heat. So double the energy capture of PV. And we don't have to have the expense up front of building a greenfield brand new power plant. And as you said, when you use heat to make power, there's something called Carnot efficiency. You know, not to geek out too much here, but maybe some of your listeners will already know. For those that don't, there's a fundamental efficiency hit when you go from heat to electricity. A heat engine will have, um, it could be 30%, it could be 40% efficient, where you're losing 60, 70% of the energy that just you can't, you can't convert into electricity. So we don't have that uh, efficiency hit, so we're not losing that energy all the energy gets used, and we didn't have the expense of building a power plant if we do these process heat applications. Yeah. Yeah, and that is, I think that's a, a very obvious, natural, and and very intuitive progression going from, from these, well, where, I guess, where the CSP makes sense in in the oil patch utilizing the ability to concentrate that solar energy and use it to produce the heavy oils that currently, what are we doing? We're, we're burning natural gas to produce steam to then inject into the ground. Whereas the, the, it's almost a backwards thought process there because they will, you'll produce electricity using a natural gas turbine and, take the off basically produce that electricity to then get exhaust heat that you can use to generate some lower quality steam to then re-inject whereas here we get to you're skipping a lot of those extra steps that ultimately produce lower and lower efficiencies and you're you're losing energy where you get to go directly from the sun into getting that oil. Yeah, and you actually touched on the cogen plants out at these uh, EOR sites, enhanced oil recovery sites, and a lot of them do have uh, cogen where they'll burn the gas on the front end making power, and then they have what's called a HERSIG, heat recovery steam generator. Um, so the power plant actually is set up to have um, power generation with exhaust heat 
that waste heat that they kind of use um, for the steam to go down the hole. And it's a much more efficient use of the natural gas. And so they built a lot of those plants. So, and actually that, that touches on another point that, you know, when I said in the future going to the power generation, one of the opportunities is, and this also brings up another topic of discussion, the low, the low carbon fuel standard here in California uh, provides policy and uh, subsidy support to deploy this approach to decarbonize the transport sector. And so you've got this support to deploy solar technologies like ours. And what you end up with is an asset, a solar asset that you own and has a lifetime uh, of decades. And if your EOR project, maybe it gets you know the point where you don't want to operate anymore because the economics aren't making sense after another decade or, or two decades, but you still got the solar asset in place. It, I think it stands to reason that you could get a second life out of the solar asset by then saying, well, let's, you know, let's bolt some more stuff on here, maybe modify the infrastructure we have in place to, to produce green power, electricity. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's extending the value of that asset that essentially was supported, the economics that were supported by the LCFS program in the first place. And then you, you can then convert it. And it's, I think it's a powerful story because you know, fossil fuel globally is still the majority for transport. And in the United States even, it's still yeah. like 97%. And you, you're not going to turn that off overnight. I mean, that would be a problem, right? You, we, need, we need the economy to still function. And so our, our pitch generally is, hey, let's decarbonize what we got now with what we got now and be making, you know, chipping away at, at the problem and we have a pathway here where you can then see what happens on, you know, longer, further into the transition, right? And it's not, yeah. transition is different than step function chain. It's like, it's not overnight, <laughs> transition takes time. And so that's, that's a big part of what we're trying to do. Yeah, yeah, and that, it, it is beautiful to to hear and to see that that path of not only the next five and ten years, but for say for geothermal, it's a thirty year lifetime what we're looking at, and for for a CSP plant, it sounds like you have a fifteen twenty thirty year life plan for yeah, these, 30. and it it goes from the from the EOR production or from the the heat production into what could be a second life after that first initial contract or that first initial use case is done. There's yep. there, and it's actually even a, a longer term story. Uh, there's studies I found and, and looked. Renewable energy has been deployed long enough where they're actually looking at end of life of the first generation plants have been put out there and mm. the ma vast majority of what's happening is repowers where if it's an old, you know, three, four generation old turbine or three, four, uh, generation old, um, uh, uh, solar technology, you're seeing people keep the site, keep the interconnections, 
renegotiate the contracts. And usually you just put in the latest generation stuff. So it's, it's actually very different than oil and gas in that respect. Whereas an oil and gas project, production declines over time, despite the nature of what it is. But for a renewable energy project, production increases over time because you, you capture the technology and performance improvements and the economic improvements. So that's very much part of our pitch, too, is that, hey, here's a way to decarbonize the existing oil and gas operations. But then you, you then get on board that same uh, train where you're there's not necessarily an end of the line. It's, you know, a stop. And on that stop, you upgrade and then you keep going. Um, that's, yeah. that's a big part of the narrative, I think. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting point. It's something that I would like to get into, but I, I don't think we have time today yeah. because that is, yeah. that's one of those things that, that you see on LinkedIn and you see in the news about, about repowering wind turbines and something where a lot of these are starting to get repowered at 10 or 15 years, but maybe their original lifespan and PPA was a 20, 25 or 30 year PPA. And now the, the life cycle assessment is starting to look worse and worse because of that. So I think it, that's something that I'd like to, I would really enjoy having a conversation with, some type of life cycle analysis expert to really talk through all of that and looking mm. at the different technologies. And because it, it's, it's one of those things that is always the nowadays, it is one of the top three rebuttals to renewable energy is, mm. are we actually, is the production of renewable energy actually saving carbon or is it a, is it a net carbon savings or is it just a zero carbon production at this point for electricity? And that's something that, that we really do need to consider and think about because if, if the goal is, is net zero in real time production or is it net zero or zero carbon actual product. And yeah. it we're starting to get into semantics, but I think that's that's kind of where the world is going is is digging into those details. Yeah, and actually use the word rebuttal to renewable energy. That that topic obviously as you say LCO uh, life cycle cost expert would be much better uh, than yours truly. On that topic, I'm I, I'm I'm speaking much more narrow narrowly around hey, you know, uh, just my own technology platform and you know yep. what might happen at the end of life of my particular projects. But you're right, broadly speaking. But you did talk about uh, you know there's a range of rebuttals to renewable energy deployment, and I think another one of those rebuttals is uh, the the whole subsidy idea where. Oh, they need subsidies to survive. And I, I myself just mentioned the low carbon fuel standard, but the, uh, I, I, my, my opinion on that particular rebuttal is that people who make it, make it at their peril. Right. Um, mm. and so 
if I may uh, talk a little bit about that, uh, the yeah, go ahead. Yeah, what do you mean by that, John? It's because uh, often you think about subsidies and and really, I mean, you look today. There are a lot of those technologies out there that, frankly, are not competitive without subsidies. So it is, it is one of those things that that sometimes it if you can't stand on your own two feet today, why would you think that you could stand on your own two feet later? I think right. is is really the rebuttal. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I mean. The PV industry at the start of, well, looking at, say, 2007-8 timeframe, uh, that was a kickoff in California of the California Solar Initiative, CSI. And you're talking, I forget what it was, it was like dollars per watt installed subsidy. I mean, it was, it was huge. And what that kicked off, it kicked off all these arguments about, well, why are you doing this if it can't stand on its feet? What happened was um, people chased after the subsidies and so there was competition. And so, yeah, okay, so there's a uh, XYZ dollars per watt subsidy, but they designed the program for that to be reduced over time. And so also just to get at the, at the initial subsidy levels, hey, if you can beat your competitor by 10 cents a watt, you do. And so, Mm-hmm. Well, then he's going to try to beat you by 10 cents a watt. Then the third one, well, she's going to try to beat you both by another 10 cents a watt. And so then you see what actually happened was this very smooth and continuous price decline. The PPAs went down and down and down to the point now where the CSI doesn't exist. It, it completely sunset. It's completely gone. And you see PPAs at like these really low prices. Now, there's the intermittency issue, that's true, but for what it is, for what it actually does deliver, it is, in fact, the lowest cost option. Now, you can't, you, you, you still need um, reliable uh, stuff for um, weather and seasonal issues, but for what it is, it's cheap. And if, if you don't think that's going to keep happening across the board, you know, that's, that, you know, I don't know why you don't think that's going to keep happening, right? And so it's it's. I think Joe, you 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 put it best actually in another conversation we we had where you said this the subsidies are what gets you off the subsidies, and I, I can't I I can't agree with you more completely. And another thing is innovation. It drives innovation because you're innovating to try to win within the subsidized, and you end up innovating to where you don't need the subsidies. And an excellent example is if you look at the decline in coal and how that happened, it wasn't renewable energy subsidies. It was innovation in horizontal drilling and fracking and natural gas, right? That that drove you know a revolution in natural gas. You look at retiring, you look at reduction in coal and a similar increase in natural gas, that's what did it. So you want to look at that innovation and improvement, and it can come from anywhere. So, uh, and that was a surprise uh, actually to a lot of renewable energy people was innovation in natural gas made it hard to compete, even with the subsidies. So it's it's a very active, dynamic ecosystem, um, and I think the public wants to end up with, you know, a sustainable. You know, we're never going to run out of photons. You know, we're never going to run out of wind. 
Um, it's clean. And so it's got broad-based public support. And so the public is going to keep leaning toward using the renewable and geothermal, right? I mean, the Earth's course can be hot for a very long time. That keeps coming up. And just there are these uh, energy resources that we're never going to run out of. And they're clean. And so the public is going to keep leaning toward it and driving, providing those incentives in the form of subsidies and other support that are going to make people innovate to capture that. And then you end up with the virtual cycle where you no, you no longer need those subsidies. Yep. Yeah, that is, you hit it, you hit it on the head there explaining the, the value of the subsidies for really getting us off the subsidies and, and what, what those drive. And I think there's a lot of this again, this again is another complete conversation to have another time because there's, there are a lot of, a lot of programs that, that people partake in for funding research and, and arguably something like the small business innovation and research grant program could be considered a subsidy because it is is government funding of, yeah. And so I think there's, there are a lot of aspects that, that people may not think about and and something to, yeah. Another one of those. And this is also one of my favorite examples, rural electrification at the turn of the last century. Uh, 1900s and on around that time frame, you had the farmers in this country didn't have electricity. And the U.S. federal government paid to build power lines throughout rural America. It was an enormous program. And it increased, you know, that, that never would have happened. Uh, private industry, the coal companies, the utilities never would have invested because when you have one customer per mile, and you got to build a power line. You got to build a mile of power line to get one customer. They would never have done that. Um, and you're picking up 10% boost in number of customers with a ridiculous amount of investment to get there. Federal government just did it, and that was a huge, huge subsidy to the coal industry. And I personally, I'm a renewable energy guy. I have no problem with that. I want the farmers to have electric light. Okay, I want rural America to have electricity. That's, I think it's awesome. I'm glad that happened. I, I, I don't think anyone anywhere would begrudge anyone that that happened. So that's yeah. an example early on of a subsidy to the, to the fossil fuel industry that I think was a good thing. Yep. Yeah, that's a great example. And I, I, I like that example because it does point out the, the ideas and the facts and the really what is the goal of the subsidies and that is to to provide the electricity for for the for our society for our nation the the goal is to electrify as as much as possible and to provide that higher quality of life and i think that's that is what we see with with the transition into renewable energy we we have this belief that renewable energy is going to provide a better quality of life we we are actively trying to figure out how and why 
because there are those issues that we've talked about, intermittency and energy density and and other issues as well. But ultimately, the goal is to reduce that carbon footprint to provide a higher quality of life. And so how are we going to do that? Right now, it is it is through government programs to help us figure it out. But ultimately, the the market is going to win and what we the solutions that we come up with that are competitive will will be the solution and and i am i am confident that we will be able to get to a a low carbon future yeah i strongly agree how could it not be that way at some point Mm -hmm. you know at some point the wells will get to the point where they're no they're just not economic for any price and at that point it's not like the world is just going to all of a sudden we're going to revert back to living in tents right and hunting bison okay we're still going to farm we're still going to have cities and factories we're still going to do everything and at at that point we will have alternatives in place to meet our energy needs it's just the question is um, when when do we cross that that threshold where it's yep. um, renewable? And what you know, what's the economic impact? Have we invested in technologies to get it to where hey, it's still the same cost or not? Yep, yep. Well, with that, I I know we've we've kind of jumped around to a lot of different topics. I'm gonna bring us home here with a few final questions. The the first one, what is the most important book you've ever read? Ha, there's a few. I love that. Thanks. It's a completely uh, different topic. I'll say my f- current favorite is actually a book by um, Carol Dweck. Uh, I think Growth Mindset. Um, maybe the title book is just Mindset, but it's about growth mindset and believing that you can um, – change, improve, get better, get smarter, get, you know, no matter what. And it's, it's all about mindset. If we, if, if, uh, if our company hadn't had this mindset of frankly, humility about where we were and what was uh, possible and what we should be doing, maybe we weren't right. Maybe we weren't the best to start, but that with applying ourselves, applying, with a lot of effort and concentration and study deliberately over the course of, you know, years, we wouldn't be in a position we are now. So I think mindset is huge and it applies to everyone everywhere. So that's my current favorite. I'll put that, I'll put that out there. All right. Yep. I, I like that. I think that's a, sounds like a very, it is, it's an important topic, growth mindset and having the right mindset for the work you're doing. And it's definitely a, a, sounds like a great book. The next question, which we've kind of been talking around, when will we be net zero as a society? I, that, that's a big question. I think it's technically feasible in our lifetime, believe it or not. Will that happen? I don't know. Just looking at the grid. So there's, there's the electric grid, natural gas pipeline system, and then transportation fuel infrastructure. There's three big pieces there. 
I think the grid obviously is the low hanging fruit because it's just been the most, there's been the most progress made. So it goes without saying. I actually think that California's grid, California, so I'm, I'm in California and I'm developing uh, business opportunities in California. I, I am going to predict that the 100% RPS it, that, that it's actually going to get hit, they're going to hit it. We are going to hit it. And I think the number was 2045. I think that it's going to happen before that. I, I, I believe that California will be net zero grid before 2045. I, I, I actually feel that strongly. There are some, there, I don't think anyone knows how that's going to happen, but I think there are some nascent technologies um, that I think are going to um, be astonishing. I think people are going to fall out of their chairs what's about to happen that's going to get us through much sooner than 2045. I like your optimism. I think that is, it is a interesting take that the, even though we don't know how we're going to get there, you have the optimism that we will get there. And just the projection of where we're going suggests that we will get there before the 2045 mark. So I like that. The, the last question, do you have any, any one question for me? <laughs> um, Joe, how did you get to be uh, such an interesting guy in oil and gas? You know, you're, uh, which, how did you, what's your journey? Tell us more. Maybe I, I missed, maybe you've already talked about that on previous episodes, but uh, how do we get more Joe with tears? Yeah. Yeah. So the, I'm going to steal this from one of the previous podcast guests who calls himself a pragmatic environmentalist. For me, I have always loved and enjoyed the outdoors. I have always loved the, the science and the numbers and looking at the natural world and trying to understand it. And I, I have enjoyed being able to, to live in a world where we, we can turn the lights on and most often they come on. It seems like that's becoming less, less uh, predictable these days, but I won't go there for now. The, and, and through all of that, I, I wanted to find a way to combine both my love for the environment and the outdoors and also do something that gives back to society produce a tangible product that that would ultimately help people and i think as as i'm talking through this probably everybody is nodding their heads and what's coming to mind is energy because all of us who are producing energy are directly improving the quality of life for for anybody using energy and so that's how i ended up going towards energy and i think the the that combination being on the oil and gas global network is because subsurface technologies are being developed in oil and gas i've had i've worked in the oil and gas industry during during the past 5 years i've been in geothermal in doing academic research for the past 10 and it's just so obvious where the 
where the knowledge transfer can occur and where there are similar skill sets that can be applied. So it's a it's a almost an obvious transition to go from oil and gas to geothermal. And and I've always been, I guess getting back to the pragmatic environmentalist part, I've always been a promoter of energy and however I can use that, however I can produce energy with my degree, whether that is being on a podcast, sharing stories with people, whether that is helping produce oil or gas, or whether that is producing geothermal. I have, I have always been pro-energy production and energy story sharing. And so that's, that's how I'm at PetroLearn. We, we are focused on geothermal carbon sequestration. That is, we see that as, as the future, but we also recognize and, and are very enthusiastic to make, make energy production cleaner for unconventionals, high, high pressure, high temperature wells, offshore wells. Really, we, we want to make it so that every well drilled in the ground is a success and more importantly is not a danger to the producers and to the public. So that is, I guess that is a a long winded answer to how, what I'm doing and who I am and et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) That's awesome. I, I love that storytelling component. And can I tell one more piece of our story? Can I, can I make a shameless plug? Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. So I, I mean, I love talking about this uh, topic, as you can tell, I mean, it's my, my, um, life's work. Um, and right now we have an interesting, if, if any of your listeners found anything of what I said, compelling and interesting, check out startengine.com slash hyperlife. We actually are in the middle of a crowdfunding round and for people who like the story and want to have a chance to participate, uh, as investors, you know, crowdfunding has completely rewritten the rules um, and lets us uh, go out and do something like this. So startengine.com slash hyperlight. Yes, John, thank you for for letting the viewers know that. I think that is a, a good note to end on. So, John, thank you for joining me today on the show. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you wanted to say? Uh, big thank you for having me on. This has been uh, really fun and informative for me, actually. I enjoyed it. And to you and your listeners, stay tuned because there's, there's, like I said, there's some stuff that I think is going to make people fall out of their seat. So, so follow us. Follow what we're doing and stay tuned. All right. Well, John, thank you again for joining me today. And thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. Please do me a favor. Give me a five-star rating and leave a review. Doing these two simple actions will help share these stories and reach a wider audience. And if you want to hear more great stories and keep up to date with the energy industry, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. It's a new year and time for a new work location. If you're in the Houston area, try out the Canon. 
mention OGGN and they will give you a free day pass. It is my Houston office and it's also where we host our monthly OGGN industry mixers. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have your own story you want to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.